Sometimes you just want the quick facts. No opinions, no speculation. I'm Claire Thornton, an audio editor with USA Today. My team works around the clock to bring you the Five Things podcast. Every morning, me and my co-host Taylor Wilson help you know what to keep an eye out for that day. We always have a fresh mix of stories, from politics to entertainment to sports, covering all parts of the country. On Sundays, you can lean back with in-depth episodes about stories you may have heard earlier that week. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows and start listening to Five Things today. Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Joe Biden generates bipartisan backlash in Florida over his decision to ease restrictions on Cuba and Venezuela. Lawmakers gear up for a special session on property insurance next week, and the state gets a controversial new elections chief officer. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing this week with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. But first... John, I'm sure you got a lot of uh, numbers uh, swimming around your uh, head with uh, a property insurance special session coming up. Uh, what do you got for us today? Oh, I sure do. Zach, I do have a number this week, and we're well, we're, we're well into baseball season, so I'm coming in with a with a nine, a Mudville right. nine. Got a full uh, full team on the field here. How about you, uh, Antonio? What's uh, what's your number this week? I'm going seven figures with three point four million. Three point four million, and I'm right in the middle with. 100,000. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, Joe Biden put Florida Democrats on the defensive this week when his administration announced its easing restrictions on Cuba and Venezuela, which is a very politically charged issue in Florida, of course. The state has a lot of residents who fled repressive governments in both countries. Republicans immediately pounced, saying Biden is coddling authoritarian socialist regimes. Trump and the GOP hammered this message during the 2020 election, helping them make gains with Hispanic voters in South Florida. So, of course, many Florida Democrats are wary of taking a softer approach to Cuba and Venezuela. There was tepid support among Democrats for some of the changes to Cuba policy, such as allowing family reunification. But Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Democratic Congresswoman Val Demings both criticized aspects of Biden's new approach to Cuba and his easing of sanctions on Venezuela drew even more scathing response from Democrats. State Senator Annette Tadeo, who's running for governor, said, quote, the administration cannot give credibility to tyrants like Maduro and then wonder why Hispanic voters are departing our party in record numbers. The Biden administration needs to immediately reverse course, she said. Antonio, Democrats seem pretty worried that this could cause uh, a backlash here in Florida. Do they have reason to be concerned? Yeah, they do. And unfortunately, it's just a little bit too, it's going to be too late when when they do. Look, there, there are at least two reasons why. Number one, thawing the Cold War with Cuba has been a political loser for Democrat for Democrats on the home front, while escalating it has been a winner for Republicans. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Ronald Reagan era four, four decades ago. Most recently, you know, we saw what happened in 2020, where former President Donald Trump swept Miami-Dade's Hispanic vote, which is largely Cuban-American, and that helped him cruise to an easy win over President Biden in Florida by just over three percentage points. Yes, part of that was the effective use of that socialism label, as we have talked about in previous podcasts. 
But the reason that social label tag works so well in Miami-Dade is because Biden was Obama's, President Obama's VP back when Obama restored diplomatic relations with Raul Castro's communist regime and then actually even went to a baseball game with the dictator in Havana. So, you know, when you flash that photo of Obama with Castro at the baseball game and then you photo of Biden with Obama, it's plausible for voters to connect the dots to socialism. Now, I was there in Little Havana five years ago next month when Trump came to that bastion of anti-Castroism to announce he would roll back all of the Obama engagement initiatives with Cuba. And Trump did it, everything from cruise ships to uh, a lot of those regularly scheduled air flights that were taking place out of South Florida to Cuba. And Trump was rewarded for it in November 2020, while Biden was punished for his support of the Obama policy. Now, you can argue that Biden is acting in the U.S. national interest, and we could certainly debate that. But the Democrats and Cuba softliners have always banked on a theory that has not borne out since the 1990s. That theory is that, yes, the original Cuban exiles from the 1960s and 1970s are hardliners on Havana diplomacy. But their children and grandchildren, they thought, would be more flexible. Same for the more recent waves of Cuban-Americans who, the thinking went, tended to be more economic immigrants and have deep familial relations on the island. That's the theory. And to an extent, these efforts by Biden appear to also appeal to that view. Problem is that view has been dead wrong. You know, I look, I have seen next to zero evidence over the past three decades to support that belief, at least not in the emergence of a significant swing vote within the Cuban-American bloc. Yeah, there are voices and votes supporting Democrats, but they're not a game changer. By and large, the children and grandchildren of the original exiles are pretty much just as hardline as their parents and grandparents. And those recent arrivals, guess what? Many of them hate the current Havana government just as much. In fact, I would say that those who have settled in Florida in the past decade or so despise Cuba's post-Castro leader, Miguel Diaz-Ganel, even more than the children and grandchildren of the original exiles. Look, I covered those Patria Vida protests last summer in Florida, and, and, and the ones that were blocking the streets overwhelmingly tended to be young Cuban-Americans and recent arrivals. Yeah, I covered them too, uh, Antonio, and there was a lot of young people out there. In fact, I would venture to say that it was almost all young people. Yeah. I mean, people who were middle-aged mm -hmm. all the way down into their 20s, uh, maybe even some in their teens that that um, were, were here in Sarasota. And I didn't even realize that Sarasota had much of a Cuban uh, population, but they really came oh. out for these protests um, and they really were upset with the government there. So, I mean, there's still a lot of animosity towards the, the government on that yeah. island. Yeah, Zach, we're everywhere in Florida and other parts too. <laughs> but, okay, but look, we, and, and again, we could have a conversation on the policy and merits of the Biden actions. But as a political carrot for Florida's Cuban-American voters, it's been on arrival and it bodes poorly for Democrats on this false ballot. And what do you with the Venezuela issue? I mean, Democrats were even more seemed even more concerned about that. I mean, you, you saw some of the statements that were put out. I read that statement from uh, Tadeo where she's basically saying we wonder why Hispanic voters are departing our party in record numbers. I mean, this is why. I mean, um, on that issue, it almost seems like they're. I mean, they're trying to, I mean, gas prices are super high and people are connecting um, the easing of sanctions with, with that. And maybe because Venezuela is such a, a big oil producer, that, that doesn't seem to be going over well at all either. I mean, it, it seems like some of these Cuba policies, uh, you can argue, 
like uh, the family reunification and things like that. I think, you know, they're, they're, people are saying that maybe that it doesn't have direct uh, economic influence, but um, if, that's not the same in Venezuela, is it? No, it's not. But the, the issue with Venezuela is it's twofold. One is you're, you're giving a buying oil from Venezuela is a massive influx of capital into that government and into that, you know, that dictatorship. I mean, it's, it, it's not get to the people. It's straight for, remember, it's the PDVSA, uh, which is the, uh, the state-run oil company, is a government entity in, in Venezuela. So you're literally funding the government. At the same time, there is almost that, that look of defeat that, that we're, we're begging Maduro, Nicolas Maduro, we're begging him for oil. We're begging him to come to help us, to rescue us from our economic situation. So that, that really sparks a lot of animosity in, in South Florida and other parts uh, for those two reasons. All in all, I mean, Annette Dell is right. You know, they're, 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 you are really costing uh, Democrats in Florida with these policies, particularly when it comes to a lot of these, you know, the, the, the Hispanic vote, which, you know, there are a lot of different groups of Hispanics in Florida. But when it comes to voting and it comes to giving money, Cuban-Americans still lead the pack. So, Antonio, this talk that this is a sign that uh, Biden and Democrats at the federal level have basically uh, given up on Florida. You think that potentially there's some legitimacy to that? And I mean, and what does that say about the prospects for Democrats in um, November here? I mean, against DeSantis and Rubio, uh, if 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 the if they're not worried about how some of their policies are, are playing in Florida, seems to indicate they don't have high hopes for their candidates in Florida. Yeah, it does. And we've been sensing that for you know a good part of the year. I remember at one point last year, my number was the number of times that uh, Biden or, or, or the Vice President Kamala Harris had been to Florida, and it was one. I mean, they, they have made no you know, effort other than when you know, Biden came for the Surfside uh, presser right after the building collapsed. Um, it, it's just not they're they're really putting very little investment in this state. And it's and, you know, and it's a little perplexing, given that you would think that Val Demings at the top of the ticket gave him a fighting chance. And but they are, they really are undermining her um, with with this effort. And uh, again, and, and sparking a lot of single issue voters in South Florida to really get fired up about voting and voting against Democrats. All right, more bad news for Florida Democrats. Well, while Biden's actions in Latin America could be a big issue in the election, another issue for many voters is rising property insurance rates, which are increasing by double digits for many policyholders. Other homeowners are getting dropped by their insurer or scrambling for coverage because their insurer has actually failed. There's been a number of those failures uh, in recent years. Meanwhile, hurricane season kicks off in less than two weeks. Lawmakers are meeting in Tallahassee next week to try and get a handle on the crisis and stabilize the market. But John, we've heard this before, haven't we? Every few years, lawmakers file a bill intended to fix what ails Florida's property insurance market. Is there really any reason to believe they'll succeed this time? <laughs> well, Zach, uh, I guess success is pretty subjective, especially when it comes to state legislators trying to revitalize a, a private insurance market, as you point out. Um, from my reporting, I'd say that consumers have little good to expect 
out of this uh, special session, at least in the short term. Um, higher in property insurance bills really do look like they're here to stay for months anyway. Uh, when you consider you have a shortage of companies right now, uh, meaning those that are willing to write policies, they can charge more. Uh, because there's less competition. Uh, we're in a risk-prone state where, as you pointed out, hurricane season is fast approaching. And we have uh, national supply chain problems and inflation, which is spiking the cost of any repair that would be needed for a home. And uh, that's another reason insurers feel authorized to charge more for coverage. Um, it, it's a mess. And uh, yes, uh, lawmakers have been chipping away at pieces of this problem in recent years with uh, changes in 2019, followed by more fixes in 2021. And uh, and this year, the Senate passed another plan whose uh, central item was allowing a, a new deductible for roof repairs that would uh, require the owner of a damaged uh, $300,000 home, for example, to pay another $6,000 out of pocket. Uh, that did not pass in the House. Uh, which ultimately nothing passed this session uh, during the regular session. And that's kind of one of the reasons we're back here. So that that deductible may be back on the table uh, when it comes to uh, lawmakers start talking about the fixes next week. If they're talking about having homeowners pay more, that's not really fixing the problem. If the problem is, is that people are paying huge amounts for property insurance, right? I know. It's going to be very hard to like declare victory out of this. Um, you know, you, you sort of have a sense that the consumer is not really the king here. Uh, instead, the legislature seems very inclined to attempt to answer the industry's wish list in hopes that by, by doing more, uh, more companies will come to Florida, and those that are writing policies in Florida will continue to do so. And, um, you, you know, I guess the, the goal would be if you have more companies, then there's more options for uh, property owners to, to buy insurance from. And uh, that's where maybe someday in the future, the, the insurance rates will start coming down because of that competition. But, uh, but to get there, uh, they're going to satisfy, presumably, a wish list that involves mostly efforts to tilt the table away from customers being able to sue insurers for slow service or failure to pay for claims. Uh, statistics do show that Florida accounts for only about 8% of the nation's property insurance claims, but 76% of its lawsuits over property insurance claims. So it is a very highly litigious uh, atmosphere in Florida, and legislators uh, are going to try to get at that and try to uh, blunt the possibility of more lawsuits coming along. Uh, that, that's a controversial move. We have, uh, you know, the the, the state's uh, trial lawyer association is very close to uh, many legislators, mostly Democrats, but some influential Republicans as well, uh, which includes uh, House Speaker Chris Sprouls. Uh, but there seems to be a momentum uh, heading from Governor DeSantis to do something about the lawyers. So I, I think we're going to see something come out of this session that does limit the possibility of lawsuits. Uh, another step will probably be to give insurers easier access to the uh, state's hurricane catastrophe fund. That's the, the big state-backed reinsurance pool that companies can tap for cash when they get overwhelmed by claims following a big series of storms. And uh, there also could well be changes to citizens' property insurance. Uh, that, too, is a taxpayer-backed company that now covers 840000 and Florida policyholders almost uh, double what it was only three years ago. 
Um, you know, all told, most of the changes aren't going to help customers right away. But the goal would be that if the market is stabilized through this hurricane season, and then maybe these changes uh, help more insurers, uh, there's sort of a trickle-down effect. That means customers maybe will, uh, months down the road, may be able to start seeing slightly lower bills. But no, there, there, there's no guarantee of that. But uh, at least for Governor DeSantis and the 160-member legislature with every seat on the ballot this year, uh, they, they may avoid an economic catastrophe this summer if, uh, if you know, a series of hurricanes hits. Uh, people are going to be paying more, but I'd predict that after this session, you'll hear the governor and Republican lawmakers pivot quickly and uh, talk about how you know, talk even more than they have been about how inflation that they say is caused by President Biden is hurting Floridians. Uh, you're not going to hear too much talk about the costs that these Florida leaders are heaping on homeowners. I think you're going to see that downplayed uh, going forward. But uh, Biden will be the boogeyman for most Republican legislators heading into this uh, fall election. You mentioned fraud, John, and that's one thing that it seems certain lawmakers are going to try and go after the, this lawsuit issue. The governor keeps bringing it up as he travels the state. He's being asked about this property insurance special section session, and he keeps harping on the idea that there's uh, fraudulent uh, lawsuit claims um, out there, which is something uh, the insurance industry is also pushing and many Republican lawmakers are pushing. And, uh, you know, in any industry, there's probably fraud, but it's worth pointing out that um, a couple years ago when they passed an insurance bill, they also tried to tackle this lawsuit issue and they put new restrictions uh, on lawsuits and that bill hasn't solved the problem. And during the testimony for that bill, there was a number of homeowners uh, who came forward and said, look, uh, I sued my insurer, or I used a public adjuster, or I did these things because my insurer was lowballing me. They weren't paying me enough to fix the repairs to my home. These were people whose homes had been damaged by Hurricane Michael up in the panhandle. And so if you are making a claim with your insurer and it's not enough to cover the damage to your home, what what recourse do you have other than to file a lawsuit? But I think they want to force them into uh, mitigation or arbitration, yeah, arbitration of some kind and, yeah. and, and limit yeah. these lawsuits. But the question is, is uh, is 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 this going to impact people's legitimate claims? And so that's the, the counter argument to the whole fraud thing. And I'm sure there'll be some some talk about that uh, next week. Well, Florida got a new uh, Secretary of State recently when Governor Ron DeSantis appointed State Representative Cord Byrd to take the place of Laurel Lee, who left the job to run for Congress. The Secretary of State oversees elections in Florida, always an important job, but one that has taken on a lot of significance in the Trump era as the former president has made unfounded claims of election fraud and Republicans have pushed for new restrictions on voting. John, Democrats are uh, have, have really been quite loud in criticizing Byrd, who is seen as uh, more partisan than past secretaries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But Byrd may be the most partisan secretary of state Florida has ever had. He's a, a conservative Republican lawyer and former legislator who was spotted with his wife aboard a boat last summer flying a QAnon flag. Uh, the, the Secretary of State, of course, is Florida's top elections official. And uh, those who had previously served in the post more typically had some experience in the elections field or, you know, were seen as capable of playing the role of a 
unbiased umpire. Uh, it was Catherine Harris of the 2000 recount <laughs> fame. That's, That's right. I, she really, um, you know, got quite a bit of criticism during that process as, as you know, kind of um, being more on the side of the Bush family. But, um, you know, that's probably the most famous secretary of state in Florida history. And, and what is that? I mean, over the last 20 years, so they haven't really been in the news that much. And they have been seen generally as more less partisan, right? Yeah, yeah. A little bit more of a government functionary, uh, it seems like uh, now. Yeah, yeah. Then they, they did change it after Catherine Harris. You remember Catherine Harris was elected uh, right. as secretary of state. Now it's no longer it's it's a it's a governor appointed position. So uh, secretary of state is a little bit more part of the administration now, which, of course, in the DeSantis era right now, that also raises some alarms for Democrats and, uh, you know, voter rights organizations, because uh, DeSantis obviously has some pretty strong opinions about how elections should be held. And uh, he has never completely uh, dismissed uh, Trump's claim of uh, that Trump should be in the White House in 2020 because of voter fraud. But, uh, you know, Byrd's predecessor, Laurel Lee, for example, she was a, a judge before DeSantis appointed her. Um, of course, now she's going partisan now, too, because she just announced her candidacy <laughs> as, a, as a Republican running for a crowded open congressional seat. But um, when she was secretary, she had a very measured approach. She wasn't like a bomb thrower. She was, she no. was seen as pretty, um, you know, kind of low key. And, and uh, she really uh, watched what she said uh, in public, it seemed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, she was not somebody that that really overtly took the, uh, you know, Republican side, let's say, in, ele in elections. It didn't seem like it anyway. But, you know, Florida with a history of tight tight election contest. Remember, we had three statewide recounts in 2018. Um, you know, previous governors seem, seem to tout this perception of neutrality and fairness as a, as a kind of requirement for the job. But but the naming of Byrd uh, really kind of tests that standard because uh, Byrd is a close follower of DeSantis and he and his wife are adherents to former President Trump and and they're kind of a power couple right now, too, with the governor in March having appointed Byrd's wife, uh, Esther, to the uh, state education board. And, and uh, Byrd has worked on some pretty partisan legislation, right? I mean, he was pushing like the sanctuary cities bill and some other yes. things. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he he is uh, sponsored legislation that was sanctuary cities was aimed at cracking down on undocumented immigrants. Uh, yeah, he also was part of that anti-protest legislation, um, the, which toughened penalties on protesters. And he's also been uh, right behind uh, the governor on uh, expanding parent, parents' rights in the education of their children, which includes what critics call the "Don't Say Gay" bill. So uh, Bird is uh, you know pretty far out there on the. Uh, uh, on the political right, and uh, now he's going to be playing the role of uh, the the referee on elections. Uh, that'll be an interesting uh, role to play. Uh, Esther Bird is uh, uh, an interesting figure. Uh, after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, uh, uh, she po posted on Facebook her support for the Trump side, warning her quote was, there are only two teams with, uh, with us or against us. We, the people, will not forget. So um, that's the kind of table talk maybe that's going on in the Bird household right now. But, um, you know, so Cord Bird, uh, he, he's a little unnerving now to be armed with a new uh, first-in-the-nation uh, election security force that 
DeSantis recently signed into law. And uh, also, it'll be worth watching to see how he interprets uh, state law involving the location of drop boxes, ballot collecting, and the and the regulation of organizations who work to register new voters. Uh, a lot of Democrats and civil rights and voter organizations were were worried about that new security force. Uh, they said that they they feared that it could uh, become something of a weapon used against voter groups that opposed DeSantis. Um, and, you know, Bird, from his history, as we just talked about some of the legislation he sponsored, he seems to be willing to use weapons. So um, we'll just have to see how uh, the new secretary uh, plays in this very high profile role in a in a big election year coming up with the governor on the ballot and, you know, all cabinet members and uh, all legislators among uh, a lot of congressional seats as well. Yeah, and a lot of attention on these election administrators. You know, Trump has really pushed all over the country to get people um, in place uh, as uh, secretaries of state and others who oversee uh, elections that are, um, you know, favorable to his views about these unfounded uh, fraud claims. And, uh, um, you know, probably uh, DeSantis uh, felt some pressure to, to put somebody uh, in the job who, who, um, you know, was, uh, you know, considered Fits that profile a little bit. Yeah. Of a Trump ally. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to see how he enforces election law um, going into uh, the campaign season here. We'll move on to some numbers. Uh, Antonio, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, I had 3.4 million. And senores, I am going to end where we began uh, U.S. Cuba policy and, and a little food for thought. Look, Cuba is an island of 11 million people suffering massive scarcities of food, medicine, and basic necessities. And here's the thing, though. Uh, Cuba also lists 7.1 million Internet users, 55% of whom have access to social media platforms and 3.4 million who connect to the Internet from their smartphones. Now, these are the numbers last summer during the Padre and Vida protests that I mentioned against the country's uh, communist government that I spoke about a little bit earlier. You know, and that's how we knew that there had been an uprising across all of Cuba because protesting Cubans were webcasting their peaceful civil disobedience to the world via smartphones, social media platforms, and internet access. The question is, how did these smartphones get to Cuba? And how can Cubans who earn a miserly, miserly pay of in generally worthless Cuban pesos afford global internet access? The answer is those phones were handed to them by loved ones visiting the island. And the cost of internet access, it's paid for by those same loved ones outside of Cuba. The moral of the story is an engagement with the Cuban people, not isolating them, is the way to promote democracy and freedom in Cuba. So the critical policy question is not what to do with the embargo or travel restrictions. The key question is, which are the policy initiatives that engage the Cuban people, you know, which are the ones that empower them? The day those questions drive you as policy, and, and then yield effective pro-democracy results, that's the day we actually see sustained efforts to end the communist dictatorship and the Cold War that is well into its seventh decade between the United States and Cuba. And by the way, that Cold War with Cuba, it's lasted longer than even the global Cold War. That's interesting, Antonio. So maybe the family, I know Biden lifted a cap on family remittances, giving them more money to buy things like smartphones, you think could, because I, I mean, I guess there's 
talk that some of that money could somehow make it to the regime, or that's what DeSantis is saying. But if they have more money to connect to the internet or buy smart, yeah, I mean, you, you think that that could uh, help the democracy movement? That's what we've always seen, okay? That the whole point of the Cuban government, the dictatorship, is to have people dependent on the government and government handouts. That's how they control the population. So right. if you have money and you can purchase stuff on your own and you have a small business and you basically are able to watch out after yourself and don't need the government, well then that's what the push that's where the push for democracy and free enterprise and and ending you know communist rule will come through. The question yeah. is which policies on the US side help that versus deter that. That's pretty interesting. Uh, John, you want to tell us about your number? I do. I have nine are the number of hurricanes predicted for this uh, Atlantic hurricane season, which begins June 1st, and which, um, as I've just mentioned, is a is a driver for Florida lawmakers to attempt to do something and to tackle the state's uh, property insurance problems. Now, uh, the prediction of nine hurricanes comes from Colorado State University, whose researchers do these forecasts every year. And uh, the nine hurricanes would top what has been an average of just over seven hurricanes a year for the past 30 years. Um, in addition, four of those hurricanes are expected to be major. That's in the uh, category three to five level, which uh, is big and uh, potentially pretty destructive. So the um, hurricane season is going to be with us uh, through June, no, November 30th. So uh, it's going to be here for a while. And, uh, you know, I don't know how accurate these forecasts are. I used to always like the uh, the old farmer's almanac and its weather <laughs> predictions. But I, I do think uh, Colorado State University may have a little more science in its corner. So uh, I'll, I'll give it some uh, some props for accuracy. But um, with a special session coming up next week in Tallahassee, it, 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 to some degree, it shows that hurricane season is already having an effect. It has people evacuating. At least 160 legislators will be relocating to the state capitol for a week. Uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that we don't have any hurricanes hit the state this year because uh, if you no think the property insurance market is in crisis now. Uh, just wait until, until that happens. Well, my number is... Uh, 100,000. That's the amount of money that billionaire casino mogul Steve Wynn has donated to Governor Ron DeSantis's re-election campaign. Wynn is famous for developing some of the most iconic hotels and casinos in Las Vegas, and he became very rich in the process. But lately, he's been mired in scandal. He resigned from the company that bears his name in 2018 after being accused of sexual misconduct and also stepped down as the uh, Republican National Committee's finance chair that year. Now, Wynn is being accused by the U.S. Department of Justice of being an unregistered foreign agent. The DOJ says Wynn lobbied former President Donald Trump on behalf of China, that's right, China, which was trying to get Trump to deport a Chinese citizen who was seeking political asylum in the United States. The lawsuit against Wynn says he lobbied on China's behalf to protect his gambling interests in the country. Apparently, uh, he has uh, casino interests in Macau, which is uh, under Chinese control. DeSantis has been a relentless critic of China, just like Trump. Last year, he ordered the state's investment managers to review all holdings to see if any are tied to China with the idea of pulling state funds out of such investments. And he recently accused Disney of being more concerned about making money in China than about the country's poor human rights record. Yet DeSantis now has an alleged Chinese agent as one of his biggest donors, and his campaign hasn't distanced itself from Wynn. Instead, campaign officials are ignoring questions about him. 
That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. And thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.